good things. He's saying instead, it actually means taking delight in the Lord. And that will inspire a person's desires. Because of this, his or her desires, you and my desires, will be good because of our service of a good, good God. When what we enjoy the most, in other words, is God himself, then the desires of our heart are in perfect accord with our delight in him. Unlike Oprah's take on this, our delight in God does not derive from generalizations about compassion and and love and forgiveness. It's found in the specificity of Yahweh and who He is. The exclusivity of the living Christ is what we are to delight in. Psalm 37, 4-5 is often misinterpreted sort of in the same way Matthew 7, 7 is. Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Uh, sort of when you read these verses in, in the wrong light, it looks like God is a, a genie coming out of a lamp or something. Um, God is not a your wish, my command type of God. He is the commander. He is sovereign over everything that's happening. Here's, here's a great question to lead us to the correct interpretation of this passage and others like it in the Bible. If your desires are granted, can God be delighted in the results? If you got what you asked for tomorrow, is the one true God glorified? If you are able, please stand as we open our Bibles to read Psalms 37, 4 through 17. Or with a verse we've already begun discussing. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Not yourself, it tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked. For he sees and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Verse 16, better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. As always, may we remember the... So, we're going to run through just a little context of, of the Psalms. You know, we're going through this series where we're touching on a Psalm every Sunday leading up to Advent. So right now, Psalm 37, uh, if you're looking carefully at it, it's actually an acrostic in which approximately every uh, other verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This uh, made it easier to memorize, um, although it makes it more difficult to discern the structure of the ideas, which are kind of interwoven throughout. This sort of reads like a proverb, doesn't it? 
Roughly, uh, just to categorize this for you quickly, uh, 37, 1 through 11 deals with the idea of submitting to God, which is sort of where we'll stay today in 4 through 5. But 37, 12 through 26 speaks of our contentment in him as part of that submission, that we are to be fully content in our God and require nothing else because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. 37 evidence of that submission to Christ Jesus. People will see it in you by what we do. And in that temptation to look at the wicked prospering and be envious, we have a most reoccurring command in this passage, which I think several of us will enjoy or at least agree with, trusting that the Lord will judge righteously and that we don't have to. doesn't affect our mission at all. Our mission is to soul win, grow in Christ, raise our families in the word. We have what we're supposed to do. It's the judge, it's the judge God, it's God the judge who will judge righteously. We don't have to do that. I'm thankful for his power every day. This chapter actually is not addressed to God. Isn't that interesting? It's actually addressed to mankind. Of course, it's about our right relationship with our God. But this conversation is an important one to have. Because it's going to require us to look at our lives a bit closer. Much like the book of Proverbs speaks of the wise man and the fool, this entire chapter uh, paints two roads, the righteous man and the unrighteous man. Um, there are two ways to walk, right? We see that all throughout the New Testament. First John, for instance, 1, 5 through 7. Darkness, light. Uh, we can serve one of two masters. Matthew six twenty four, right? God or the wealth of this world. There's not a lot of middle ground in the Christian faith, is there? There's not a lot of places for us to hang out in the lukewarm, is there? It's sort of righteous and unrighteous, light, darkness, the one true God or idols. Throughout this psalm, you see the Lord's preservation of his own and at the same time, his imminent destruction of the wicked. You see that in verse 23 and 27. They preserve forever and yet the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. In other words, the God who once saved us is the same God that continues to sustain us. He preserves us forever. God is the source of our delight in God. When our delight isn't in God, however, we are destined to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. But for many within the church today, and I, and I got to say, I just think this is kind of weird. They have separated their walk with the Lord with their delight in Him. They walk in the Lord, but they don't enjoy Him. And that isn't a walk in the Lord. That just looks like a walk in the Lord. Our delights will speak to our desires, and our desires will speak to who we worship. Is it, it's almost like as if in order to be holy, have you ever met that person where in order to be holy, they must be unhappy? You're smiling. Are you even saved? It's this mentality of just saying, we're, we're commanded by God to delight in him. And not just to delight in him, delight in him with every single thing we have. To the point he is actually delighted by our delight in him. Answering the following question today will best help us understand uh, this often misdefined, misconstrued passage. Question is, 
How does our passion for happiness fit with God's passion for glory? How does our passion for happiness fit with God's passion for glory? Uh, Pastor John Piper lived with this tension for years until he discovered a phrase. Now, I don't want you to turn off on me right when I say the phrase, okay? That is not the deal. I got you for like 15 more minutes, all right? So like, just, just be real. I'm going to say it. You're going to be like, well, this is offensive. I'm getting, you're going to leave. Don't do that. The, the phrase here that he discovered is called Christian hedonism. Christian hedonism. It is supposed to be a difficult phrase for us to wrap our heads around. Christian hedonism at first sounds a bit like an oxymoron, like delicious veggie burgers. It just doesn't make a lot of <laughs> sense. Hedonism, though, hedonism without any other adjective is a non-Christian worldview. If you need to know just what hedonism is, it's a non-Christian worldview. It's a way of living traced back to the events in the garden. Eve chose the fruit because it was a delight in her eye. She wanted it. She wanted to eat it, so she did. She grabbed the fruit while moron Adam's out naming a goose or something. She grabs the fruit. You know what I mean? And she <laughs> named a goose. I don't, I don't know who was there. A raptor. Does that help? All right. <laughs> so he was out. Bottom line is he wasn't paying attention. Brittany, this isn't group participation. <laughs> I very humbly and meekly responded to you just then. All right. It's a degree of pleasure. The point here is I think sometimes we just go straight to the idea of the fruit hanging off the tree and she ate it. She wanted to eat it. That's why she ate it. She took delight in the bite. If you need things to rhyme, that was accidental. She took delight in it. You know what was even more a reflection of human nature is that she um, took delight in what would happen when she ate it. She took delight in the thoughts that she would be on the same par as God. That she would be on the same level as her God. That went through her head. A degree of pleasure occurred when she wanted it. And look, let's, let's not argue this. Let's not pretend or kid ourselves, okay? You cannot argue that there is a degree of pleasure when we sin. That's what makes it enticing. That's, that's why we do it. If it wasn't pleasurable, we wouldn't do it. There is pleasure to sin. But just because it is enticing doesn't mean it is justified. And just because it is pleasurable does not mean it is honorable and that God gets the glory for it. It is not justified to sin against a perfect, holy, righteous God. Until Christ. All sin has one common characteristic. It starts with hope and ends in pain. And this is what's so ironic about hedonism, is that their whole idea is to do everything to maximize their pleasure and minimize their pain. Yet when you try to maximize your pleasure with the things of this world, it always results in pain. That's what that's idol worship's default position is blinding pain, separation and emptiness. Yet people flock to it. It's a sign of our nature, it's a sign of our love for the things that are not of God. And hedonism isn't a new practice. One thing that often gets kind of tossed around is things are worse today than they've ever been. Look, I don't know if anyone can accurately judge that. Like, I know things are really bad today, but have you ever heard of Roman bathhouses? I'm just... Maybe, maybe there's a history book that we can all just start reading. Hedonism isn't a new practice. 
Hedonism has been a way of life for the majority of the world for a very long time. A basic problem with hedonism is that in striving to achieve pleasure, you may actually find what you want to avoid, which is pain. It's as if human beings make lousy gods, isn't it? So why does this happen? C.S. Lewis came into the picture with this profound statement that our problem as human beings is not that our desires are too strong, but that our desires are too weak. I thought my desires were the problem. Lewis says, no, your desires aren't the problem. The weakness of your desires are the problem. You are like a child fooling about in slums with your mud pies because you can't imagine what a holiday at the sea is like. In other words, your desires for the great things that God is offering you are way too small. Your problem is not big desires. Your problem is small desires for big things. So hedonism versus Christian hedonism is the difference between eat, drink, and be merry. Many of you may know it from Epicurean philosophy, right? This idea of eat, drink, and be merry. Why? Because tomorrow we die. So just appease the flesh as much as you possibly can. That's hedonism. Christian hedonism is, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul's letter to the Corinthians. So what exactly is Christian hedonism? The phrase invented by Piper to reconcile our happiness and God's glory. Piper summarizes Christian hedonism this way. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Underlying Piper's philosophy of Christian hedonism is the idea that God has designed each of us with an innate desire to pursue happiness. The problem is not that we seek pleasure and we should stop. The problem is that we seek pleasure from idols rather than doing all things to the glory of God, rather than seeking pleasures in the things that delight the Lord. In the Bible, Old and New Testaments, God does not condemn people for seeking happiness, but for seeking it from sources other than himself. Jeremiah 2, uh, 13, I believe it is. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can not hold water. Piper points out pleasure is not anti-God. This goes back to that idea that we have to walk with Christ, but we can't enjoy ourselves at church. We can't enjoy ourselves in our spiritual walk. You should be most enjoying yourself being more intimate with Christ Jesus. That's where you should find the majority of your delight. That's how you should see everything else is through the lens of that worship. Not as a hindrance to your happiness or a dragging your feet mentality to be more like Christ. This is a personal experience of mine. Pretty often, uh, people are weirded out by Amelia Baptist Church's calendar. Why are you guys so busy? I'm just like, our church wants to be together. Yeah, it's annoying. (laughs) Our church genuinely loves each other. No, really, why do you have so much stuff? Our our church loves each other and they want to do stuff together. Why is that such an odd concept today? They they believe themselves to be a faith family and they depend on each other like a faith family should. Is it odd to delight in God yet not delight being around the people of God? We delight in Him. Why would we not want to delight in being with the same people that worship the one true God? I want to do that. Do you know why? 
Because if we're really doing our job as believers in Christ, if we're really on mission the way we should, then we're getting beat up outside these walls. This place is a hospital, a place of recuperation, a place where we can breathe out and go, not under some facade that everyone in here knows Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. Goodness knows there are people that need to know Jesus Christ that find themselves inside the church. Praise be to God for that. There's also a place where we feel at home after living in a world where we certainly don't. There's nothing wrong with delighting in the people of God. It's a sign that you're truly delighting in Him, I think. If we delight in Him, it's only natural. But these signs of the unrighteousness and this back and forth that we see in Psalm 37, if you find yourself dragging your feet to the things of God, what does that benefit you? Who's winning there? Many will misinterpret Psalm 37, 4 kind of like this. Pastor, I thought religion was all self-denial. Have you ever had a conversation with anyone like that that just thinks religion is about being told what not to do? It's like, man, I thought godliness was killing our fleshly desires. I didn't know we got to keep those. Thanks, 37, 4. This is great. When they say that, when they, when they talk about the verse in that way, what they're really doing is they're taking their, their delight in themselves and their own desires, and they're kind of just using God as a means to get to their end, or thinking they can. The truth is, the religion of most people looks a lot like Christianity on the outside, but mainly consists in abstaining from sins that they secretly love. Is that what we're doing? Is that, is that really what all our faith is about to us, just... Look, if if faith is just abstaining out loud from sins that we privately adore, then has a change occurred? Has transformation happened? Do Do we have the evidence of the Holy Spirit that saved us? If we secretly love? Just because your sins are secret doesn't make you more holy. These private sins are what's killing us. These private sins confessed to pastors with audacity and pride are what keep 80% of pastors wanting to do another job. This is a serious deal. The idea of removing confession and the concept of delighting in the Lord away from our spiritual walk as if we're fooling anyone. You're not fooling the only person that matters. You're fooling everybody else that doesn't. It's that only God can judge me thing. That's the scariest sentence in the world. I'd rather all of you judge me, which you probably do. (laughs) I judge myself for wearing this suit today. (laughs) I've said this time and time again. We even talked about it in our Sunday school this morning. Um... Follow your heart is terrible advice. But here's where Neil corrects, corrects this for me. Neil was like, you say that a lot. I was like, I do. And I mean it. And Neil said, but the truth is, we are all going to follow our heart. That's why we have to make sure it's captivated by Christ Jesus. Yeah, he's better than I am. I've gotten past it. I'm humble about it. It's fine. 
In other words, guys, it's, it's, it's real hard, real difficult to live out, but it's a very simple concept in Psalm 37. If you know Jesus, you may live how you like because you delight in living as you should. You don't have to go against your desires because if you know Christ, your desires go perfectly with your delight in Him. You get to do what you want to do. You don't look at the faith as, as not getting to do what I want to do. You get to do what you want to do. Worship and serve a holy God. That is the most exciting thing on the planet for someone who's been miraculously changed by the Spirit of God. There's nothing better than that. There's a reason why tears come to your eyes when someone comes up here and gives their testimony of being radically changed. And you're like, yes! Like you feel something's leaping out in you, ready to shout. That's the Spirit of God. That's evidence to being changed. That's not emotional appeal. That's not a sustained minor chord. It's just something so much bigger than us, yet our desires have been too small. So what are we delighting in? And how is it affecting our lives as well as our witness? The bottom line here is, we enjoy what we value. Garage sales are not filled to the brim with things people can't live without. If, for instance, my Star Wars collectibles ended up at a garage sale, I'd have a pretty good idea who the culprit was. The culprit doesn't value them like I value them. She would have no problem removing them from her life. We enjoy what we value, so we must be careful what we value and understand why we value it. And that, that's what we get from the Psalms. That's what we get from the Proverbs. That's why, that's why we should be in them constantly, because they remind us of what to value and what not to value. And this starts to direct our heart in the way it should be directed as believers in Christ Jesus. Piper was influenced, of course, as we all have been, by the Apostle Paul's writings in Philippians 1, uh, 20 through 21. My eager expectation is that Christ be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for, and that little word became all important, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. With that little word, Paul grounds the certainty of his expectation that Christ will be magnified in his body when he lives and when he dies. Why? Because for Paul, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He's not awaiting heaven for heaven. He is awaiting heaven for Jesus. Our excitement about heaven should be Jesus is there. I get him. Not safety and comfort and convenience and a really big payoff for being a good person. That's not why I'm excited about heaven. I'm excited about heaven for the same reason I'm excited to worship. That's where my delight is. That's where I want my family's delight to be. That's where I want my church family's delight to be. And the only thing that is worthy of all of our delight. I love how great thou art. I got to see, I got to hear 110 kids sing how great thou art yesterday after two hours of outreach ministry. And man alive, there's something, it's so funny that that line is knees will bow in humble adoration. And every single time we sing it, my knees feel like buckling. At the weight of how precious he is and how despicable I can be in my mind and in my thoughts and in my selfishness and in my action. Yet he still has reached down and grabbed me from my reclay and he's pulled me up and he has been delighted in my delight in him. He wants us to be delighted. He wants us to experience those things. He is the source 
of how we are able to experience those things. We don't serve a God who just saved us and left us. We serve a God who saved us and sustains us and then will promise to preserve us for eternity, not even for a little while. Christian hedonism, for those going through serious suffering in times of just this is tough for me. It's just tough to delight in the Lord right now, okay? Christian hedonism isn't blind optimism. It's eternal perspective that will result in internal joy. And who has more of a reason to be joyful in the Lord Jesus than those who have been plucked out of hell by His love and mercy? We should be the most delighted people in our neighborhoods, but that's why Ecclesiastes, a book often associated with mourning, talks about how we have eternity on our hearts. When we go through suffering here, we are in an imperfect, fallen place. And that should do nothing but only remind us that we don't end here, that we are a people with an eternal perspective, and that everything that is happening to us is doing, is happening, because God wants to shape us and mold us and make us look more like His Son, because it results in our good, and it most results in His glory. That is an easy thing to say and a tough thing to live out. So depend and rely on your faith family. I'm I'm so incredibly grateful that I can't mess up what God has finished. Because if I could, I would. You know, I tend to mess up a few things throughout the week around the house. I break a dish. I hit a curb. My wife often feels like she's married to an ape. I just don't know where my mind is all the time, probably because of that busy calendar. Just blame you. But at the end of the day, if I could mess up everything that day, if I could mess up in front of my kids, you know what I can't mess up? I can't mess up what God has said. It is finished. I'm excited I can't move His grace. Paul David Tripp said, trying to get rid of the presence of God is like trying to move smoke with a rake. Once He has you, He has you. And if we are a people who delight in the ways of our God, we can rest assured what is happening to us, around us, within us, is working for our good and for His glory. Whether it be blessing, suffering, we can be at the very least delightful that He keeps His promises to us. Our final point today, Christian hedonism is possible because our Christ suffered, was crucified, and is now resurrected. As we delight in Him, He delights in us. When we desire God with all our hearts, we know that this pleases the Lord. Here's an illustration to help us kind of connect the dots here. It's my anniversary, right? Let's say, um, I say to Amy Jo, you know, we're going to go celebrate our anniversary tonight. It's our 8th. Eighth anniversary. Don't use anniversary examples uh, when you preach. Eighth anniversary and spending tonight. And I just say to her, I look at her, I go, spending tonight with you would make me really happy. No wife has ever said, nor would Amy Jo ever say, you are so selfish. All you think about is yourself. It makes you happy taking me out and spending the evening with me. No wife ever complains that type of love and affection is selfish. Why? Because if I pursue my full satisfaction in my wife, it honors her. She's honored by that. So it is with God. If we are drawn to God because we want to spend time with God, if God is our treasure and our satisfaction, God is honored. But if we drag our feet to Him, audaciously with even the expectation of blessing, praying in the streets for everyone to see, then 
we've just admitted to the world that we are Pharisees. Being most satisfied in God is right at the heart of what it means to be a believer, which means we must understand this well. It is at the heart of what it means to belong to Jesus Christ, what it means to treasure and trust Jesus Christ. This is not the icing on the cake of Christianity. This is Christianity. This should be the goal of all who profess Him. That He be most glorified and we are most satisfied in Him. The question is today, church, are you most satisfied in Him? Are you bowing down to the other things fighting for that satisfaction? Are you, are you laying off the gas in your witness because of the other things that you'd rather be worshiping, that you'd rather be delighting in? Do you hope to end as satisfied in Him as you can possibly be? Uh, my grandfather was a Methodist preacher. He died of esophagus cancer at 82 years old uh, in 2008, in February. Um, it was one of the saddest days ever. The saddest day in my family's history. I remember not like buckling down and crying even for the funeral. But there was a time where uh, I was listening to a CD of his sermons and I just went Mike Baxter on the whole thing. Thanks, Mike. That helped. Um, <laughs> growing up, my love for the gospel was shaped by reading C.S. Lewis. Read tons of C.S. Lewis, didn't we? Had tons of screw tape letters. The Apostle Paul, of course. But conversations with my parents about the gospel, I remember, I remember those. A lot of driving conversations with my parents about the gospel. It's like something about the car that brings out Bible conversations. I don't know what it is. But it does reach back to my grandfather as well. He was probably the happiest man I've ever known and yet filled and consumed with the glory of God. It seemed like in his life he reconciled these things and we were blessed to give an example of that reconciliation on his deathbed. Um, on his deathbed, he was watching television uh, or he had the television on really. He was tangled up in oxygen tubes and my, my uh, mom was there at his bedside for most of the whole thing till the end of his life and, and uh, Linda Carter comes on the television for those of you who don't know who Linda Carter is, Linda Carter played Wonder Woman. Um, Linda Carter is well and known as a very attractive woman. Uh, my mom was sitting next to him at the time, and he uses what little strength he has to reach over and asks her if she would turn the channel. Uh, he's a couple of days away from dying at this point, and my mom, of course, probably a little confused, did. Uh, and when she asked why, he reminded her that no man is beyond temptation to sin against the holy God. So on his deathbed, God was glorified in him because he was satisfied with God. That is my prayer for me because I'm not him. That is my prayer for my family. That's my prayer for my church. Let's delight in the Lord. Let's do some damage. Let's see people come to Christ. Let's let them look at us and see people who love to worship the King. Let's pray. Father God, there's a part of me that wants to say, what's come over me? <laughs> but I know. It's the grace of a holy God. You are worthy of every single second. 
of our praise, of our adoration. Father, may it be the heart cry of this church that we see people respond to the gospel, that we see people believe in the gospel and repent so that they can begin that life of delight in the only thing that will ever matter in an eternal significance stance, which is our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want to delight in the Lord to such a degree that at the point of my dying, Christ will be more magnified than my love for the things of this world will be remembered. Christ was more satisfying to Paul than anything and everything else this life has to offer. Make that our heart's prayer. Father, we continue to worship you this morning and grow thankful for that devotion that we have because of the Spirit of God. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.